I think it's important that we recognize as we bring this down to our, our own lives that every event that transpires in our own lives is part of God's great plan for us. Uh, either as part of God's allowance, if we decide that in our own willfulness that we're going to transgress His Word, we're going to walk in deviance with His clear uh, plan for us, or as we walk with Him and He brings those events into our lives that will strengthen us in our walk, God superintends it all. And it's important that we always remember that. Sometimes we don't understand how things fit into the plan, even as we think this morning of this tragedy that we just heard. How does that fit into God's plan? God has allowed a tragedy to happen, and yet it is not a surprise to Him. And God will turn it for good. One of the most uh, precious statements you find in the book of Genesis as you many times have heard, is Joseph's statement later on in, in this uh, story that we're reading is that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And what may appear to be evil, as it impacts the lives of true believers, God turns it for good. Somehow, some way. There's a lesson in everything that takes place in our lives. That automobile accident that we may have, that uh, bankruptcy we may go through, that loss of a job, that loss of a loved one, whatever it may be, there, there is something in it that God wants us to learn that will make us more like Christ. Because one of the themes of the New Testament, Testament is the suffering of Christ. In, in Isaiah 53, we have the theme of the suffering servant that, that the, the Jews who never turned to Christ never really grasped the point of the Messiah being a suffering servant. They never really understood who this referred to because in their opinion, Messiah will come in great triumph and, and great glory and would not suffer and go to a cross. But Christ suffered in ways far beyond any that we have ever suffered or ever will suffer. And so all of this is used by God to to shape in us a Christ-likeness. And this, hopefully, is what we've been seeing in the life of Joseph and what we're seeing in the life of these ten brothers. This is not a comfortable situation for them. Joseph does not intend to make it comfortable for them, as we'll see as we proceed here. Now, remember, uh, the famine has come, the seven years of famine, the famine has impacted Canaan. The reason Egypt is doing so well is because uh, Joseph had been sent by God to Egypt to, uh, to bring salvation to that land and, and to his own family. And Joseph faithfully uh, did what God commanded him to do and established the grain reserves throughout the land of Egypt. And as a result, when the, when the famine comes, there is sufficient food in Egypt, not only for all the Egyptians, but to be sold to those foreigners who would come. And so there comes the brothers of Joseph. Those boys, those men, they're not boys anymore, they're, they're men, their father, their mothers, all of them will be impacted by the famine. The famine does not circumvent them. Just because they're God's people, just because they're, they're the chosen ones, does not mean that they're not impacted by the events of this life. 
There's no little wall built around them so that they walk through life on, uh, you know, immune to the tragedies that are about them. They're not. But God in the midst of the famine provides a way, and that's how God works. God doesn't build a bridge over troubled waters, as the old song went. He takes us through the troubled waters. But as you've all read the poem Footprints, which has been multiplied a jillion times now, and, and that's good, God walks with us and He even carries us through some of the most difficult times in our lives. Joseph's brothers had absolutely no idea that this stern, suspicious Egyptian was their brother. There was no thought further from their minds. Absolutely none. I mean, they might have thought he was an extraterrestrial before they ever thought that he was Joseph. In the 20 years, of course, this, this teenager had become a mature man. He was shaven. He was dressed fully in, in Egyptian royal garb. And he was speaking only Egyptian. And, and the point was made by the fact that this passage tells us that there was an interpreter. Someone who listened to them and then spoke to, to uh, Joseph in Egyptian. It was not necessary, but it was part of the plan. In verse 9, we're told that as these boys, <laughs> sorry, these men came before him and prostrated themselves face down. Remember that was in the, the, the previous passage in verse 6 in the last part of verse 6, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Something they never did before in their lives to Joseph. But Joseph was reminded of his dream. Uh, let me just turn back to that for a minute and, and read it again. After all, it's been months since we studied the 37th chapter. So... <clears throat> In chapter 37, verse 5, Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Are you actually to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And we know he had a second dream that reinforced the first. <clears throat> These dreams were a glimpse into the future. And I think at the time, Joseph believed that. And we're told that Jacob, even though he admonished his son Joseph for the second dream that he had, in which the sun, moon, and stars all bowed down, implying that Jacob and, and, his, uh, and Joseph's mother would also bow down, it tells us in that passage that Jacob, as Mary later did when she heard the words of Jesus, hid these things in her heart. So jo 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 Jacob uh, kept these thoughts in his heart and mind for later. And so here the dream is being fulfilled right before his very eyes. I think that Jacob, I think that Joseph <laughs> had largely forgotten the dream. I think he had suppressed the dream. 
because after what he'd gone through in Egypt, and especially his time in prison, the whole idea seemed ludicrous. My brothers are going to bow down to me and I'm going to rule over them. Sure, right, while I'm wasting away in prison in a foreign country and they don't even know where I am. Right. I think that he may have thought that the, that the dreams even got him into this place. Because had he not told these dreams to his brothers in the first place, they might not have become as angry as they became with him, and maybe they wouldn't have even sold him into Egypt in the first place. I think he got to the point where he even questioned whether the dream was originally from God or not. We see this all the time, right? We have a sense that God is directing us a certain way, and then we seem to hit a wall. And then we think, well, maybe God isn't really leading me this way at all. But, but God leads us in ways that are often hard. Just talk to Dave and Beth about it. You know, they've had a very difficult three years down there in Ecuador. Does that mean God didn't call them in Ecuador? I think not. I think that definitely they were called there. But it's been a difficult time for them. And, and, and that's why prayer for our missionaries is so important, that, that they be bathed in God's protection. And as, as Joseph sat in prison, he could have easily questioned God's leading in his life. Again, reminding ourselves that he didn't have a Bible. He didn't have a preacher or a prophet to be talking to him. He was by himself with what he had heard from God through his father Jacob and through the ancestors before that, Abraham and Isaac. That was all he had. And yet he was a man of faith. Twenty years later, the impossible dream was fulfilled to the letter. All God's promises are fulfilled to the letter. I, I put a couple of verses in the outline that we could just uh, see how this is reinforced by statements of Scripture itself. In Joshua 23... Joshua is coming to the end of his career as the spiritual military commander of the nation of Israel as they have established themselves in the land. And in verse 14 of chapter 23, he says, Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth, which means he's going to die. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. And that's the difference between the true living God and all of the other gods of this world. Because all of the other gods of this world are failures. They cannot fulfill their word because they are not sovereign. They are not even God. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, Solomon, in his great prayer, says these words, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promises, which he promised through Moses his servant. In other words, all the words of the Pentateuch, all of the promises that came out of Mount Sinai and beyond, not one of them has failed. 
Now, God's people failed, and God's people became disobedient. And when they became disobedient, the good things God promised didn't come true. But God had said that would be the way it was, and that He had given the promises of punishment, and they did come true. So whichever way you went, God's promises came true, for good or for ill, from our perspective, from the human perspective. I didn't put this on the outline, but there was a passage, there is a passage in 1 Peter, put my glasses on here, 2 Peter, <clears throat> chapter 1, which speaks to the promises of God. 2 Peter 1, beginning at verse 2 through verse 4, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything per pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So what is the purpose of God's promises? So that we might have a good life? So that we might just enjoy ourselves in the flesh? No, that's not the purpose. He tells us right here, so that we might become partakers of the divine nature. All of God's plan, all of God's purpose, is that we might know Him, whom to know is life eternal. Really hard for us, I think, to keep our eyes eternally fixed without becoming a monk or an, a nun or something and crawling off in a monastery and where we can just meditate all day and, and not worry so much about the things of this life, even though if you study the history of monasticism, you know that the monastics had plenty to do. They had to plow the gardens and they had to shuck the corn and they had to cook the food. and So there were plenty of other things to do. But they were free from the anxieties of life theoretically. At least they could be. <laughs> However, even behind monastic walls, they took their problems generally. But in it all, we, the, the, the point is, is to learn how to practice the presence of God, as Brother Lawrence put it, even while we work, even while we play even while we go to school, even while we sit in church. If we feel like we're in the presence of God only when we're sitting in church and listening to the preacher, then there's something wrong. Because we need to be in the presence of God every minute of every day. Whether we're, we're reading in bed or skiing on the lake or, or, or doing our job, whatever it is, we need to sense that God is with us and that we're His instrument. And that's what his promises are all about. Mary? Don't you think that when Joseph was raised up, that he wanted to go home? I mean, as soon as he got wealthy, it's like there's lines missing that God said, wait. You know, I, or is that just a woman's thing, that I would love to have traded home into my family with my robes and my servants and nail my brothers to the cross? <laughs> <laughs> is that what a woman thinks? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's no doubt that those thoughts came to his mind. I, Especially when he had kids. You know, whether his father was still alive even. If 20 years yeah. had gone by, 
Yeah. Well, you remember when we, I, I don't know if you were here, but when we uh, looked at the passage going back to chapter 41, I don't know if you can remember that far back, but... Verse 51. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and my father's household. And now that doesn't mean that from his mind was withdrawn uh, his thought about his family, but the longing to go home that desire to be there rather than here was replaced by this son now who was a man of his own flesh, a boy of his own flesh, who gave him a link to Egypt because he had an Egyptian bride and now he had a child that was part Egyptian and part Hebrew. And, and so there was this, this uh, uh, I think he came to the place of being willing to, to be satisfied, as Paul would say, whatever state I am in therewith to be content that he was content to be in Egypt and do what God wanted him to do, but I don't think that erased from his mind every thought of his father's household or even the thoughts that you're saying. But they were not the driving force in his life. It was just something back in the corner of his mind. And I'm sure that he may have thought that when the seven years are over, the seven years of famine, maybe then there'll be opportunity to go see my family. That may have been in his mind. The scripture doesn't say. But God had something better in mind. And so God brings them to him. So that's a good point. I, I, one of my desires in all of this, in, in trying to teach through these passages, is for us to be able to emotionally relate to what's going on, as, as Mary is talking about here, so that we can literally put ourselves in the sandals of Joseph and his brothers and, and get a sense of what they felt like and how did God relate to that situation because to me that's the only way we can really make scripture to, re to relate to us today because if we can empathize with Joseph then we can understand how God is with us right now and, and God is helping us through the situations that we face each day. I think these promises in the scripture about God's promises should cause us when we are tempted to question whether God is really going to answer what we consider to be His promises to us, what we saw in the Scripture which we took as, as God's Word for us, when we're tempted to question whether this is really so, that we should be reminded that God wants us to be that P word, you know, patient, which seems to be so foreign to many of our natures. We, the, about the only time we're good patients, and maybe not always good patients, is when we're in hospital. <laughs> we got to be a patient there. But when it comes to being patient in our lives, we've read several times from 2 Peter 3 9. Let's not turn to it, but let me just mention it to you. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And, and that just gives us a real deep understanding of what it's all about. Why does God take so long? Why, why did God allow Rome to go so far? Why did God allow Hitler to take so many years? Stalin to murder so many? Mao, 
I mean, there's a long list of people down through history who have acted as total barber, barbarians. I mean, we think of Attila the Hun, you know, and we consider him to be the barbarian of all barbarians. Oh, my goodness. He was responsible for far fewer deaths than mar our modern barbarians. Why does God allow such people to exist? Why doesn't he cut him short? Why did he not allow the assassination attempt on Hitler to succeed? Why? Well, this passage tells us. God wants us to be patient because he is patient. Because his ultimate goal is to bring as many to redemption as possible. That's his goal. His goal is not that I be healthy every day. Even though there are some today, as you know, you've all heard the health and wealth gospel, that if we're children of the king, it means we should be wealthy and healthy and, and no bad things should happen to us. Well, as I've mentioned before, and if you certainly know yourself, you'll be hard-pressed to find that truth in this word. God allows us to go through the difficult times because he has the ultimate goal of bringing as many as are ordained into the kingdom. And you and I simply must learn to be patient. As Joseph stood looking at his ten brothers, arrayed there before him, prostrated on their faces before him, he had absolutely no reason to run down to them and hug them and say, I'm Joseph, you guys. Because the last time he looked into their eyes, there was hate and murder. The last time he saw them and heard their voices, they paid no attention to his pleas for mercy as he cried to them from the cistern, as he cried to them as he was disappearing on a camel. And they paid him no heed. So why should he rush down and put his arms around these dudes and tell them who he was? God had healed his heart. I think he had no hatred for his brothers. And this come, becomes clear as we go through the uh, passage. God had healed him, but he had no reason to believe that those brothers had changed. What had there been to prove that they had changed at all? He had not seen him before this moment. Why were they on their faces before him? Because they knew he was Joseph? Absolutely not. Because they knew he was the high muckamuck of the land, and if they wanted any food, they'd better do it. They were scared to death anyway, because here they were in, in a land of great military power with all its glory and wealth around them, and probably lots of guards, and they didn't have much choice. So what Joseph had to do was find out what kind of men they had become in these 20 years. Had they changed? Were they any different? What Joseph did was to take what the Egyptians would have perceived as a very natural tactic. Remember, the Egyptians were xenophobic. That is, they hated foreigners. And so when he accused them of being spies, all the Egyptians would understand that, even though the brothers didn't. Spies? Look inside. Does my wallet have a CIA badge? No. KGB? No. Spies? We're just poor shepherds. Well, not so poor. At least before the famine, they weren't so poor. They were accused of being spies coming to check out, literally the Hebrew, the nakedness of the land. But they, of course, 
protested otherwise. After all, Egypt had been invaded many times, even though she usually beat off most invasions. And she was a land of great wealth, therefore a, a real plum up there. And at this point in time, with the abundance of food in Egypt and a scarcity everywhere else, this would increase the attraction of Egypt. And so it's very logical that Joseph make this accusation. But his brothers protested, We are no more than we have said. We are simply true brothers, honest men, who simply want food to feed our family. Honest men, they said of themselves. The Hebrew word translated honest has the basic meaning of being firm and stable. We're family men. We're, we're men who just do an honest job every day and we go home to our families and we kick back and watch TV at night, you know, we go to bed. We just do the normal routine. We're not spies. Upstanding, solid citizens. Not vagabonds. Not misrepresenting ourselves. But Joseph, uh, he must have, Joseph must have been a pretty good actor because all of their pleas were like water off the duck's back, it seemed to the brothers, because Joseph appeared totally unimpressed by whatever they said. And he kept, keeps repeating the accusation, no, you're spies, no, you're spies. I mean, you know, it must have been very frustrating for them. No matter what we say or what we do, we're, we're still spies in his eyes. But what is Joseph doing? He's forcing them to reveal information about themselves without asking questions that could cause them to be suspicious about what he knew. Because if he were to say, well, how's your father? Or how's your mother? Or, you know, in some way indicate that he knew something about them, they could become very suspicious. So they felt trapped. And in their trap to try to get themselves out, they kept revealing more and more about themselves, which is what he wanted. They declared that they were 12 brothers, one of whom was still at home and the other one is not. Joseph learned from this that Benjamin was at home doing well, that his father was alive and well yet. He wouldn't even know if his father was still alive. And he knew what they were saying about him. He was not, that is, he was dead. He knew that they knew that he had been sold off in Egypt. Last time they saw him, he was alive and well. And therefore, they had no knowledge that he was dead. And yet, that was the word that they were telling everyone. And therefore, he knew that his father thought his, he was dead and therefore had no hope of seeing him alive again. Now, for one thing, that would help Joseph to feel a little more secure in his position. Because if he thought that his father was pining away with a hope that his son was still going to be seen someday, then, then Joseph would have felt more anxious and worried about delaying this knowledge of getting back to his father that he was alive well. But since his father thought he was dead, then one day he would have a great surprise for his father. But if that took months, so let it be. It wouldn't make it any worse for his father. So Joseph appears very hard-nosed here, continuing to claim that they're spies. But he would offer them an opportunity to prove themselves. 
He commanded that one of you go home and fetch Benjamin and bring him back here and the rest of you are going into Sing Sing. You know? And you're going to stay there for the duration. What does he do that for? Well, I think that he wanted them to understand what it feels like to have your pleas totally ignored. Because the last thing in Joseph's mind relative to his brothers was have mercy upon me and don't do this. And they turned their backs on him to the man. And now their pleas are hitting a wall and falling to the ground and they're going to be in prison. This is not vindictiveness on the part of Joseph. I don't think Joseph got a lot of pleasure out of throwing them into prison. I think it hurt him. You know, sort of like the parent says to the child, this hurts me more than it hurts you. <laughs> if you really love your child, this is really true, even though the child may not believe it. You get no pleasure out of punishing a child, usually. If you do, <laughs> you better see some, a counselor. I don't think Joseph got any pleasure about, uh, out of putting his brothers into prison. But he wanted them to learn a lesson about mercy. The mercy they didn't have 20 years ago towards him. What does it feel like to have your plea for mercy totally ignored? When you're right. When you haven't committed anything evil. It's a test. He wants to find out what kind of men he's got before him here. What have these brothers become? So he imprisoned them all. All ten of them were put in prison for three days. <laughs> Let them go sit in prison and think about this for a little while. If you sit in prison, I assume <laughs> that if you sat in prison for three days, you'd have a lot of time to think. And probably talk amongst yourselves because he imprisoned them together. You know, I, you've all been in a situation, I'm sure, where a group has been responsible for something or at least is accused of being responsible for something. A lot of finger pointing starts to happen. <laughs> You're more responsible than I am. If you hadn't have done this, I told you so. You know, all kinds of things happen in that kind of a situation. Joseph was administering a tough test. You know, there's really nothing wrong with a tough test. We need a tough test every once in a while. Because without a tough test, we don't become tough. We don't learn. If all the tests are easy, we think that that's the way life is. And suddenly we hit a mountain that seems insurmountable. As a school teacher, if you just give students easy tests, oh, they may all get A's, but at the end of the course, what do they know? Probably not nearly what they should know. And they'll run into a course later on where someone will say, hey, how come you don't know the basics here? So God applies the tests to the degree that they're needed to bring us along. And so does Joseph this situation. He wants to find out what is the attitude of these ten boys towards Benjamin. Because Benjamin has taken my place in my father's eyes. He gathers this, of course, from what they have said. Benjamin's not with us because her father wouldn't let him come. <laughs> He's already lost his wife, his favorite wife and his favorite son. 
And so he's not going to let Benjamin come. So they know, he knows, that Benjamin has taken his place in his father's eyes. So now, is it the brothers' plan to get rid of Benjamin as they had gotten rid of Joseph? What does he want to know the answer to that for? Because the answer to that will determine whether reconciliation is possible. Because if they hate Benjamin as they hated Joseph, then they will probably not be reconciled to Joseph when they discover who he is. But as they see that these 20 years, these brothers have been changed and probably wished to high heaven they had never done what they did 20 years ago, then reconciliation is possible. Verse 18. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in, in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And so they did. That's a statement of what ultimately would take place. They didn't do it immediately. Then they said to one another, this is standing here in the presence of Joseph, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. They get the point, right? And Reuben answered them, always there's an uh, I told you so person. And Reuben answered them saying, Did I not tell you? <laughs> Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. And he turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Joseph appears to have changed his mind. I, this was all planned. He wanted, of course, first of all, to give those brothers a good dose of their own medicine but without totally discouraging them or causing them to be totally hard. He didn't want them to feel they were in a no-win situation because when people get in no-win situations, sometimes they do very, very extreme things. They either become as hard as a rock or they become so discouraged that, as happened to many of our soldiers in the North Korean War, they rolled over in the corner and died of no physical cause. Now Joseph doesn't want to appear weak and capricious. I'm going to put you in jail. No, I'm going to put you in jail. I'm going to send 10. No, I'm going to send 9. You know, just like he doesn't know what he's doing. So he professes to fear Elohim. Now think how smart this is. He could have said, because I fear Yahweh. Whoops. <laughs> the brothers would have been instantly aware that something odd is going on here because they knew that the name Yahweh was the name by which God was real to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alone. How does this pagan Egyptian know that name? So he uses the more generic name, Elohim. And even then they might have thought, well, you know, uh, we know that name, how come? <laughs> but it was generic enough that they didn't catch on. He now, instead of appearing as resistant as he did before, he professes that maybe you guys are honest men. You know, he's at least willing to allow that maybe they're telling the truth. 
but not to the point where he believes them without proof. This is calculated to encourage them. Well, maybe he is going to listen to us. Maybe he's a just man after all. Notice how the lessons are put in here. Lesson about mercy or lack thereof. A lesson about being just or unjust. Joseph, by example, is teaching his brothers what they should have known much earlier in their lives. He changed his demeanor and modified his requirements in order to show compassion. This is what compassion is, brothers. Only one of you will stay in prison and nine of you will go home and take food to your families. I'm still going to exact the truth from you, but I'm going to be compassionate. But if they were to return, they had to bring their youngest brother with them to prove their claim. Now Joseph's idea certainly was that they would think, aha, what he's thinking is that if we're spies, as soon as we get out of here, we're going to lickety-split and he'll never see us again and the poor dude is in prison, that's just the sacrifice we have to make. Now that wasn't Joseph's thought, but he wanted them to think that so that they knew they'd better bring Benjamin if they want to prove that they're honest men as they claim to be. The Spirit of God is in this. And the Spirit of God hammers the message home to these brothers, does He not? Loud and clear. They are so convicted that they don't even wait to get out of Joseph's presence before they start talking amongst themselves about, oh, this is all the result of what we did to Joseph. And Reuben says, I told you so. All of this right in front of Joseph. I mean, they couldn't even wait until they were out riding their donkeys down the pathway to Canaan. The answer's ahead. <laughs> Good. That's what I like. People are thinking ahead. <laughs> Can you wait? Oh, okay. Will we get to it today? Yeah, we'll, we'll try to. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> in fact, uh, that's coming up right away. They are lamenting amongst themselves about what they had done their sin against Joseph. And of course, Reuben doesn't help the situation by his I told you so attitude. But he says, I saw the judgment of God coming as a result of this. Now, Joseph always had an interpreter. Every time he spoke to them, he spoke through an interpreter. So they thought, of course, this, this dude doesn't understand our language, so it doesn't really matter. And, uh, but he understands every word. And you notice his reaction. He had to leave the room because it brought tears to this man. And there's no way this hard-nosed Egyptian prime minister should be crying in front of these guys, you know. And so he walks out of the room. Has to kind of straighten up his makeup, you know, and get it all back together. And come back and uh, face his brothers. You see, his goal was not to make the brothers pay for their sin, but to cause them to be repentant before God. God's desire for you and for me in this life is not that we pay for our sin, but that we repent. God takes no pleasure in the hard things that come in our life, but He brings them because the fruit is so good that comes from it. God wants our repentance, not that we should pay for our sin, because we cannot. 
pay for our sin. Joseph returned and then said, okay, you guys, I'm going to choose Simeon. We didn't say Simeon, but it says him. And uh, the rest of you can leave Egypt. And you'll notice the passage tells us that he bound Simeon right in front of them. Why did he do that? Well, for two reasons. One, so that they would know he wasn't kidding. This is a real thing. That they might go away with this picture of their brother being bound and taken away to prison. It would be burned in their memory. And then secondly, that they would know a little bit about what it meant to be deserted, as Joseph had been deserted by his own brothers. Now Reuben could have been the one held since he was the eldest. He could have said, all right, which of you is the, is the oldest? Which of you is the, you know, in effect, the, the head honcho of, of you? And I'm going to bound that, bind that person. He was the one who should have borne the responsibility because he was the oldest and therefore had that eldest responsibility. But he had attempted, at least verbally, to dissuade his brothers from what they did to Joseph and had even planned to secretly spirit his brother away to safety when his other brothers wouldn't pay attention to what he said. So Joseph did not choose Reuben. He chose Simeon. Simeon was the second eldest. Therefore, he was second in responsibility. That's one reason. But there are other reasons. Remember Simeon and Levi back in the days of Shechem when their sister Dinah was defiled by the prince of Shechem, whose name was also Shechem? These two boys planned a sneak attack in which they made this, this deal, remember? with the uh, males of Shechem that if you become circumcised as we are, then our daughter can live with you and our daughters, you know, we can have this, this, this intermingling of our two groups. And then when they had become circumcised and thus were un incapacitated for a little while, the two brothers came in and slaughtered all the males. Simeon was with Levi, the ring leader of that. And then on top of that, I believe, it's very probable Simeon was the ringleader of the whole affair of selling Joseph or wanting to kill Joseph in the first place and then selling him even though it was uh, Judah's idea that they be sold. But Simeon was the driving force, I believe, behind it. And so Simeon was the one who was imprisoned. Reuben should not be considered guiltless because although he opposed the plan to kill Joseph, did he tell Jacob what really happened? No. He had lived with the lie for 20 years. And thus he was as guilty as the others for what had happened. Well, we'll have to stop there. We're over time here. But um, interesting things happened on the way back home to Canaan. And we'll look at that next time.